0: Of Chicago, I'm Megan, daughter of Michael and Lisa,
1: and we and are we
0: burden glorious, glorious podcasts.
1: Welcome back to the show where we talk about our favorite trickster god Loki, now streaming on Disney Plus. Well, folks, after much delay, we are finally going to review the movie we said we'd review—a movie about a young man who, after the death of his father, must navigate a bizarre new land after a relative tries to kill him and while doing so, must come to terms with his noble family's expectations of him, their legacy of colonialism, a sibling with a tragic fate, and some truly bizarre monsters. I'm, of course, talking about Dune out in theaters and HBO Max.
0: <laughs> yeah, in, in the words of Monty Python, um, and now for something completely different, it's the Burden with Glorious podcast Dune episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which, To be honest, um, I, I didn't really see that we were going to be doing one of these in the future because um, I am not the product of a millennia-long uh, breeding program designed by witches. <laughs> I, I don't have that ability. And it, it has been a long, strange road getting here because just just in case you don't remember some of the earlier references that we've had in other episodes, you have to understand that this began quite literally with me making a a later the second joke. <laughs> and and after I explained this and I made another later the second joke, there was a point where Maureen said, Megan, is this going to be like the terror? Is this the new thing that you <laughs> reference all the time and I don't get <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm capable of being normal about Dune over here. You know, it's, it's something I enjoy, but I don't think I've ever really engaged with it in a fandom context. Meanwhile, guess who started engaging with it in a fandom context?
1: <laughs> Maureen. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so, little backstory. <laughs> uh, I never thought i would ever be interested in dune like it's oh it was only a handful of times where i like heard about it but it was always like uh like the books were like these like really really good like pillars of science fiction and like one moody movie adaptation that sucked at least from what i heard growing up and uh i mean like as a kid i was always more fantasy than sci-fi and, like, obviously, like, uh, the Lord of the Rings, uh, that was, like, my jam, and, like, uh, give me, like, elves over aliens, but, um, every time I was curious about Dune, I would just look at, like, the illustrations or book covers, and it just, like, no, no, this, this is not my brand, <laughs> this is not what I'm interested <laughs> in, <laughs> And this so, is, this is
0: fucking worms in the desert. Yeah,
1: yeah. Like, what kind of aesthetic is that? So, <laughs> I just thought I could go the rest of my life without ever having to pick up a Dune book. And I thought I could be happy like that. And then the movie, uh, the New 21 uh, movie. Uh, had its trailers released. I'm like, okay, this might be good, might not. I'm still on the fence about it. But then, uh, full disclosure, I uh, am on the autism spectrum. And as such, I have uh, pretty unorthodox ways of thinking and thought associations. And I remember I was cleaning an oven and a thought came into my head that I texted Megan that was, do you also think that the time and location is matched up just right. That hypothetically Tom Hiddleston could have been a member of Steps or S Club Seven. And you replied, Maureen, you were like the Quizotz Haderach of my friend group. And I had no idea <laughs> if that was a compliment or not, but it was just gnawing at my brain. And I, I had I don't
0: actually remember this. I do. <laughs> I tried very hard to think of what I possibly could
1: have meant by that. <laughs> well, it was just... I had to find out what that meant and what you meant by that. And then I just, like, fell down the Dune Wiki rabbit hole or wormhole are, are as it was. Sure
0: I said quit that Because what in the hell was I talking about?
1: <laughs> okay, I remember. Like, I, I know... I know there was a screenshot I made of it, of, like, a text conversation when you used that exact terminology with me.
0: Oh, my God. I have no memory of this.
1: <sighs>
0: what in the hell is going on here?
1: Well, maybe that's what makes me the Kwisatz Haderach, because I remember things people don't. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: this is where we are now, folks. <laughs> uh, so, so, this is... So this is where we are now, folks. We, we did a lot of um, prepping leading into this. We actually watched both of the film versions, although um, I should clarify, we mean the theatrical film versions. We have not watched all of the filmed versions because, to my understanding, there was actually a miniseries in the early 2000s that was made for the Sci-Fi Channel that actually had a follow-up series as well that was uh based on the first two sequels um but uh well and also those actually have um a young uh james mcavoy as uh later the second before he you know goes all later the second on everybody's asses <laughs> um glow but, down yeah i I haven't actually seen those. And on top of that, you know, when I was looking on, um, when I was looking in the, the Apple TV store, which is the easiest place for me to get or rent a movie, they didn't even have it in there. And I was like, you know what? I I don't know if I am quite this ready to to go to the dune zone. (laughs) Um, I I don't know if I necessarily had the, you know, one of the reasons that we've had so much schedule slip on this is the fact that, you know, I think both of us, we've been dealing with much heavier work schedules lately. And on top of that, in terms of um, development work on A Good Nightmare Comes So Rarely, I have actually been lining up some in-person interviews. Uh, Maureen actually got to be part of um, an interview with, Somebody, I, I won't spoil here. And on top of that, uh, Gibson and I are actually going to be presenting at BroadwayCon mm-hmm. in uh, February of next year. Um, I will get back to you guys on the specific date that we're doing that when, uh, when we have our specific schedule slot. Right now, they're still kind of putting everything together, but we are confirmed. We are going to be doing a talk about the replica model of theatrical production and we're really looking forward to it but that's this is also the kind of schedule where as good of a thing as all of this is it doesn't leave a hell of a lot of time for dune (laughs) and there has been a whole lot of dune
1: going on i mean these these are not short movies folks
0: Neither of them. I'm. I'm actually shocked by how long the David Lynch one is, considering they released it in 1984. And
1: there was an even longer cut too—the director's cut.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I know. Apparently, the version that he wanted to make was about four hours long. Yeah. Tune <laughs> everybody.
1: Ah, <laughs> <sighs> the movie about Chalamet, spice, and everything nice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This, this has just been this has been what our text conversations have been like for the past three weeks. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. It, no, it has just, just been,
1: one track mind, both of us.
0: <laughs> I mean, it does help that Dune posting really is just the superior form of shit posting. <laughs> um, I, to this day, I still don't know if it was bait or not, but somebody on... Twitter, for whatever reason, decided to post it. The best thing about the new Dune movie is that it's pretty much unmemable, meaning it is like a contrast to you know MCU properties and stuff. And the entire site decided to team up to prove them wrong. Oh
1: my god! And
0: every so often, you know, I, I just I go back to that thread and I see what more what more Dune posting memes. I mean, you know, there's there are all kinds of Dune shit posting groups on Facebook. You know. And they all have names like, you know, Doom Siege Posting or, or you know, Benegesser at Memes for... No, no, um, excuse me. La well, Dead Spicy Memes for Benegesser at Tea.
1: Or Atreides Nuts. Uh,
0: <laughs> I have not yet seen that one, but as a... I mean, y- you texted me that out of nowhere, but I've yet to
1: see <laughs> that as, like, the name of a group. But it puts, It's not the name of a group, thing. but it should be
0: that's that's where we're at so i i really there we go just the fact that maureen will text me out of nowhere atreides not
1: <laughs> uh so should we talk about the 1984 version first and then the newer one yeah okay. so
0: um um yeah so the um the first film version of Dune that was actually made. There were a couple of um, there were a couple of false starts before that, and let's be real here: Star Wars: A New Hope was profoundly influenced by the book. Um, so the book Dune was written in uh, the early '60s. It was published in 1965, and the first film version was in 1984 and it was directed by david lynch and to be honest i cannot for the life of me remember how he got that gig because it's it's not really a david lynch joint and i think david lynch was also very aware of that and that's actually
1: why what no i was sorry i was about to say thinking of his version of dune are i'm trying to think of are there any other examples of like one or two movies out there that is just a complete outlier and not at all representative of a director's uh style because i'm i've been thinking
0: there's a handful of those for david lynch except that's the only one that i know that like straight up did not turn out the way that he wanted it to Mm -hmm. um but i mean you know he also directed uh the elephant man which is a very straightforward drama and he also almost, it, it, this almost feels like it must have been a joke. He also directed an even more straightforward drama in the 90s, literally called The Straight Story. And it's actually a true story about a man who, I believe it's about a man who rode cross country on a riding lawnmower, basically just having wholesome adventures. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, And I think just the fact that he was able to call it the straight story because the man's name was, I believe, George straight, like that's practically a joke in and of itself. (laughs) I mean, it's the only thing, the only thing that I can really think of, although it's not nearly as much of an actual outlier is when people bring up the fact that like Martin Scorsese also um, directed like Hugo and the age of innocence, but At the same time, you know, a lot of Scorsese's thumbprint is just the fact that he is an extraordinarily competent director, not necessarily the same stylistic degree that people associate with David Lynch, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: which is absolutely no shade on either of them. It's more just that, you know, when you say David Lynch is directing a movie, you have a certain idea of what you're going to get. Whereas when you say Martin Scorsese is directing a movie, you just know that it's gonna be a really good movie. <laughs> well, would you say
1: difference. would you say that Dune could stand to benefit from being more <laughs> trademark lynch?
0: You know, I mean <laughs> it it would certainly be interesting to see it, although I do know that at the same time that was also you know, he was adapting it from the book. And I'm going to be honest, having, because that's the other reason that we wanted to do this episode is Maureen was really big on the idea that she's only seen visual versions of it. And I actually read the book a few years ago. Um, and I will say that the David Lynch version is actually much closer to the book than I remembered it being. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah. um, I mean, with with a handful of, you know, I, I we might as well just uh, get the elephant in the room out of the way to begin with. And that is, yes, the David Lynch one is the one that if you're like, is that the one that has has sting in the feto that's basically shaped almost like they just superimposed a chevron on his pelvis? And yes, yes, it is. <laughs> mm. <laughs> he, he is playing a character that does not even actually show up in the 2021 version. They're saving him for the second half. Mm-hmm
1: so when i saw this uh on my tv screen i almost immediately uh had to pause it and grab my notebook and just write down what i was seeing because you could not make this movie today i mean what i mean by that is like there's almost a punk rock level of rebelling against show don't tell I mean, this just completely breaks the film school rules by having a level of exposition that just halts the plot dead in its tracks, and I'm like, oh my god, this is what they teach you, like, day one, what not to do. (laughs) Just a woman just literally speaking to the audience about what's happening.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and on top of that, I mean, it's kind of a clever decision, though, to have her addressing the audience at the beginning. Because that is the closest the movie can get to the fact that through the whole first book, each chapter has a little epigram at the beginning that is attributed, and like there's a bunch of different books, but it's always attributed to the author's name is Princess Irulan. And as far as you can tell, she just ended up becoming Paul's full-time biographer. And then at the end, spoiler alert, you find out that he actually marries Princess Irulan pretty much just For dynastic purposes, he doesn't even intend to actually have children with her. It's quite literally just to secure his place on the throne. Even though he's not considered legally married to Chani, Chani is his wife. Irulan is technically, like, she's, if anything, she's actually in like less of a position than his mom was in as his father's official concubine because he's not even going to sleep with Irulan which is kind of a shitty situation for her to end up in but at the same time she also kind of, you know, focuses her life on becoming his biographer. And so having her at the prologue talking straight to the audience is about as close as they can get to that effect. Hmm. Which also raises a point that I noticed is I I love I really do love the art direction in the in the Lynch movie oh, and me too. I also love how like for no good reason everybody's running around in like very recognizable earth clothes and like when you the first time you actually see Irulan just passing through her father's throne room at the beginning she's wearing like this like very early renaissance italian dress i mean that's kind of what she has that's actually kind of what's the effect that she has going on when you uh, when she's addressing the audience as well as you know, she's got this very Renaissance Italian hairstyle going on, but with this almost Elizabethan collar situation going on
1: Yeah, just purely in terms of our direction, I prefer Lynch's version to Villeneuve's just because there's such better use of color and saturation and just uniquely 80s sci-fi weirdness to everything and i'm just so tired of low contrast cinematography and like pretty much every blockbuster of the past decade
0: i mean i think a big difference in approach is the fact that that one is made pretty much as like it's a a fantasy movie and it was marketed as a fantasy movie whereas you know something that kept hitting me when i was watching the 2021 version was wow this feels incredibly grounded Mm -hmm. and not and not even in like the you know not even in like the usual like you know superhero movie that ostensibly takes place in the real world sense it was just like huh there's a lot in this and I'm not finding myself questioning or even being like whoa shit what is that you know I mean that pretty much I would say that they managed to focus that effect pretty strongly on the sandworms yeah
1: I mean it's uh the 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 lynch Yeah, the Lynch version of Dune is very visually unique because there are some scenes that have absolutely gorgeous matte paintings for the background and just like an amazing use of space and color and lighting and then there are other scenes where it is just so obvious (laughs) that they have special effects that the average TikTok user can do nowadays.
0: What was what was the way that you referred to the the fighting? Oh, you know, the, the way that the shields are rendered. You're like, so then they turn into
1: Minecraft, and I was like, Jesse, what in the fuck are you talking? To? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, okay. I have a question. Having not read the books, why is it that in both versions of the movie, people just like turn into stuff when they fight? Like in the old movie, they become Minecraft. And in the new movie, they light up red and blue like in Tron.
0: It's a way of visually alluding to the fact that they have these, you know, invisible shields around their bodies. It's a whole thing. Um, And they kind of have to represent that visually so that the audience has an idea of what they're looking at. Um, Otherwise, it's pretty comparable to, you know, the, you know, the scene in Watchmen where he, where Dr. Manhattan takes glory onto Mars and he has to make her her own little atmosphere that's like around her body, so she's illustrated with basically just like this little tiny white rim around her body. Uh. That kind of is the impression I get of how the shields work in the book. Um, and so having like the soft colored blur that they have going on in the movies is like in the new movie, is probably like the subtlest way they could show that.
1: It just is not Whereas explained very well in either movie. <laughs> It's just... Well, I mean, you do
0: see... You do see them activating it from, like, their little wrist holster thing. Mm.
1: Okay, the other big question I have is, again, both movies had this. And it's never fully explained to my liking. Almost everyone talks like Garfield, where they have, like, a monologue, but their mouth doesn't move. <laughs>
0: I mean, there, there isn't a hell... There is... I mean, I... There's a little bit of that in in the new movie, but in the new movie, I think that it's, it's a little bit more, like, helped along by montages and stuff. So when you talk about the whole, like, you know, almost punk rock level of averting convention, there's one way that the book really has that going on as well, and that is the fact that Frank Herbert apparently was never told, and to be honest, this might not have even been something that was necessarily common advice when the book was being written. Apparently nobody ever told this man you should stay in one character's point of view for an entire scene because you get to hear everybody's thoughts all the time, which, to be honest, gets used in an almost Shakespearean sort of way in parts of it. Um, You know, the... Both movies kind of treat uh, Doctor Yue being pretty much forced to be the traitor as you know a really shocking, sad reveal. But in the book, you you know about that from the start, and honestly, it's agonizing because you feel so terrible for him, especially as it becomes clearer and clearer that he's going to be remembered as essentially the Judas Iscariot of the new religion that rises up around Paul, and it's because he's absolutely desperate to have any sense you know just the slightest sign that his wife is okay and to have her back and he doesn't even know for sure but he can't risk feeling like he let her die Mm.
1: but that's the thing that i feel like neither movie really succeeds in showing us like clearly uh yue's motivation is his wife but we never really get to see his wife or find out why, I don't know. Like oh, you, is-
0: don't, you don't in the book either, and I think that's part of the point, actually. Although there is, I, at this point, I guess, you know, we're instead of being able to do the movies point by point, we're kind of just going to be doing a big mishmash comparison of them. Do you, do you want to know the most absolutely horrifying theory I've I've encountered about this movie, about the new movie? Go ahead. This is this is like this is genuinely probably one of the worst things I've ever heard. But um, the the going theory is that um, is that the spider pet is is Doctor Yue's wife. That's what they did to her.
1: Oh God! Why?
0: <sighs> because it's way too humanoid. Because he makes a specific reference to they took her apart like a doll. And that if I remember correctly, that line is not in the book. That's a very specific thing. It, it has human hands. It responds to human speech. You know, Peter DeVries is just a little bit too entertained at the fact that this thing is in the room with them. It's that, that's the going theory is that that's what they did to Dr. UA's wife.
1: Oh my god. Which
0: may be the the single worst thing
1: I have ever heard of. But I love how fucked up that is.
0: (laughs) It's, I mean, it it is, it's, it's just absolutely fucking ghastly as as just even a concept. Um, Ooh,
1: the implications too of like, you can join her now.
0: (laughs) Oh god, yeah, no, see, that was also, that, that was one of the other, parts of it and there's an entire faction that hasn't really been mentioned yet in the new movie and they're only mentioned in passing in the David Lynch movie and um, they're called the Tleilaxu um, and their whole thing they, they're they big into different kinds of uh, bodily modifications and I kind of suspect that that might actually be what's supposed to be going on because they, they do contract work with some of the great houses and once again this is the worst fucking thing I have ever heard of. Oh my god! I, <laughs> I this, oh. I, I I feel like we're back doing our Avengers episode. <laughs> this, we proceeded like organically out of what we were talking. About. <laughs> I it's oh my god. Um, Jesus Christ! Oh, also. I will say, th- this movie is the first version to ever actually acknowledge the fact that you know UA is clearly supposed to be Asian. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's that. Um,
1: so, after seeing both movies, I think uh, the word that came through my head over and over again with them is, video game. But for completely different reasons. Um, <laughs> the 1984 version just plays, like, a 90s FMV computer game that's just entirely (laughs) cutscenes with the same (laughs) level of acting and everything. But uh, the new version is also very much like a video game. It's just that it's, like, it's basically like a prologue of an RPG game. It's two and a half hours of getting to know the main character and his tragic backstory, and then right as you should see the title card and actually go on your first official mission, it ends.
0: You know, I can't help you For one thing, okay, so, um, uh, Denis Villeneuve, if you're listening to this, I am so sorry, because you are going to absolutely hate the way that I actually had to get around to watching this movie, because my schedule is insane. <laughs> um... I, I watched a lot of it on my iPad in a Starbucks. I'm so sorry.
1: <gasps> Shame.
0: Oh, God. No, it's, but one of the first things that I noticed once I was actually able to do that was that, you know, considering that we're now living in, you know, it's, it's the streaming era, baby, and they can actually, you know, slightly modify a movie after it's been released in that format. One of the first things that I noticed that I would be shocked if that was there on opening day, because I never heard anybody talk about that, um, is that the title card actually said Dune Part One.
1: Yeah. I don't
0: know if that was the case on opening day. If if you know that, please don't hesitate to correct us on that. But I didn't hear anybody say that. I just remember a whole lot of people being like, that's it. (laughs) Running it there it's like well because this whole thing was kind of a gambit to hopefully get it made into which you know can it, it, you know what let, let's uh let, let's take a little let's take a little sidebar here which is what we're best at but this is actually really related and that is i don't get really any of the mainstream reactions to this movie on social media except for the shit posting because there's, I, I have never seen so many people manage to profoundly misunderstand movie genres in this many directions at the same time. It's, it's almost impressive. Um, <laughs> because so one of the first things that comes to mind is that Ursula Vernon, who is primarily a children's author, actually, made a thread in which she mentioned that she did generally like the movie, but towards the beginning of her thread, she made a comment about how there's one joke in this movie. Treasure it. There's not going to be any more. And she was just absolutely barraged by film bros who were, who basically, you know, the, the irony of the whole thing is just, you know, being just assaulted by film bros left and right, just being like, Oh God! See, this is what Marvel does to your brain. What did you want more fucking one-liners? What is baby gonna cry? You know, did you expect Paul to fall into his mom's kiss and then and then be like, "Well, that happened." <laughs> like, and it's just kind of like, you know what? Why do you people think that's the only form of humor that exists? Right? Like, you know, if nothing else, you know, I there was somebody in there was somebody in one of these threads that was responding like, you know, sarcastic, posting the poster of the Soviet anti-war film come and see which is sincerely one of the most harrowing films ever made um just absolutely it's the kind of film where you're probably not going to sleep very well after and I don't even mean that in like you know a torture porn sort of way it is just it is absolutely fucking bleak um and they just made a comment about, like, you know, there are no jokes in this movie. What's wrong with this movie? And it's just like, what the fuck are you doing comparing Dune to Come and See, for one thing? (laughs) But also, what really gets me about this entire, like, weird idea of, like, you know, jokes equal, you know, Joss Whedon one-liners, like, you know, content farm at this point, is do these people live in a world where the Lord of the Rings trilogy never happened.
1: Yeah, yeah, there that are that so movie.
0: So many jokes in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies. They're just not that particular type of humor. And you know what? There were more jokes in this, but at the same time, I I can forgive Ursula Vernon for not quite picking up on that, especially if she was like more engrossed in trying to follow the story. But I did actually notice, and you know what? I'm I'm actually. I I know that I'm like, I'm stating a dangerous opinion here. There was one, there definitely was one, there was one, basically a one liner in this movie where afterward I was immediately like, yeah, that, that actually was probably the single most like current mainstream blockbuster humor moment in the entire movie. And that's when, um, and that was, and that's when as, they're you know escaping and basically trying to take over the fopter there's the whole bit with uh jessica having to kind of take over the her, her own rescue mission and use the voice herself and then after they're like and are like climbing out of it she looks over at paul and just goes she just says something about like you know your pitch wasn't insistent enough and just keep like marching away from him and he has to like run after and keep up to her i was just like if anything, I'm actually surprised that I didn't see more of these guys, like, you know, absolutely, you know, massacring this movie for that line because I was just like, wow, that is the one line in this movie that is
1: exactly that sense of humor. What the hell? <laughs> Speaking of, what exactly is the deal with the, I'm just going to call it the Fuss Roda voice. <laughs> Of, like, apparently only Paul and members of, uh, the Benihana? Benny... <laughs> Benegret <laughs> ben- three. <laughs> okay. Ben- yeah. yeah. Yes. It's... They so they can only do... They can basically do, like, mud control with their voice if it gets, like, deep enough?
0: Well, you know, it's not... in. It's one of those things where, because it's in text format, the book can't really convey what it is. So they kind of just have to do the, you know, the, okay, it sounds mildly fucked up so you can understand that there's some weird stuff going on here. I mean, it really is just an audio way of conveying that there is a specific voice being used there. And honestly, at this point, it's probably also to distinguish it from a Jedi mind trick, which was probably kind of inspired by that. So, there you go. (laughs) Um, One, you know, one thing that I do have to say about the, the new movie, especially compared to the old one, is I'm actually kind of shocked that I haven't seen any criticism of the fact or even really any comment on the fact that, functionally speaking... You know, he, I mean, he serves the same role in the plot and all that. But I, I have to say, the Villeneuve version of uh, uh, Baron Harkonnen is virtually a different character.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's... I'm
0: And I do understand why that was made the case. But at the same time, as I was watching this movie, I was just like, they completely rewrote this guy. Oh, my God.
1: Yeah, when I was thinking of uh, notes to write comparing the two, I realized that I prefer uh, Lynch's version of the Baron just because he's more memorable. Like, you look at him and you immediately feel disgust. Whereas uh, the Villeneuve Baron is just, like, a very unpleasant man to be around, but it's not really, like, the visceral response that you would get from just seeing this man with like giant pock marks all over the side of his face, and just like refuse to take a single step because he has this floating balloon suit that is just so uniquely—I mean, it's basically like—I honestly believe that like people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, if they had the ability to wear a suit where they would never have to take a single step, they would.
0: So, you know, the thing is, is that the Lynch version of Harkonnen actually did receive quite a lot of criticism when it came out, not just because he's not, he, I mean, he's definitely more like the book character, but he's still not quite the same. I mean, the, the version in the, in the book is a pretty fastidious man and he's certainly not like, you know, covered in pustules. Um, and, you also, you know, while he he wears a repulsor belt under his robes, which um, is in this case because simply because um, he's so heavy that he would actually he would actually be disablingly heavy if he did not if he if he didn't wear that. But essentially, it, it makes him function as though he only weighs about fifty pounds, and. You know, and so the, the Lynch version is definitely a lot closer. And there was a moment early on in his introduction in the Vilnos version where it suddenly hit me. Oh, I get what they're doing with this character. And that is that they quite literally turned him into a gigantic, no pun intended, um, homage to uh, Colonel Kurt from Apocalypse Now. Oh. Like, that is the entire vibe of this character. You, have you seen Apocalypse now? Yes. Okay, okay. But one of the many many issues that they had when they were filming was that they cast Marlon Brando at the point in his career where even though he was still delivering fantastic performances, he also just did not give a shit about anything. And they when when Marlon Brando was cast as Colonel Kurtz they very much expected that, especially due to his method acting tendencies in like the old school sense of method acting, they really expected that he was going to show up there just, you know, just ripped to hell. And instead he showed up at pretty much the heaviest he had ever been in his life up to that point. So that's a big part of the reason why curse is filmed so much in shadow. And there's actually a pretty famous moment there where he's, Actually, kind of like, almost like symbolically, like rebaptizing himself. You know, he his his head is shaved, and he and he kind of just like swipes the water slowly down the front of his his head and down his face. And I noticed that very early on in uh, the Villeneuve version of Dune, like in actually in uh, the Baron's first scene, he does that exact gesture, and it's shot in exactly the same way. And I'm like, oh, I see where they're going with this. <laughs> So aside from, you know, being the villain, the other unfortunate dark side of Harkonnen as a character, especially in the Lynch movie, the way it was received, but honestly, there's a lot of it there in the book too, is he's been received as being a pretty grotesque homophobic caricature. And, the movie that the Lynch movie was actually hit by that accusation, especially hard because it came out in 1984 at the height of the AIDS crisis. And here you have this extraordinarily queer coated man covered in like cancerous growth. Mm-hmm. So I think that might be one of the other reasons that he's depicted so differently in the Villeneuve movie that, and also Something something else that hit me is that, you know, Colonel Kirk comparisons aside. I I don't actually feel as though the the 2021 version of Baron Harkin and I, I don't actually feel like there are too many fat phobic tropes he's playing into, which is really weird. <laughs> but part of it was but one of the things that kind of hit me as I was watching this was just thinking to myself, you know what, they they managed to pull off something that I didn't think could be pulled off, and that is this man is not shaped like anybody. I, I, I cannot imagine there is a single moviegoer going to see this movie and feeling this intense sense of discomfort of like, oh, but he's shaped like I am. Because they did just the weirdest combination of him being just absurdly fucking muscular and also super fat and not even in the sense of like, when you have like, you know, big fat guys who can also tug like, you know, a car with their body just by walking forward slowly enough. Like this is just not a human physique that exists as far as I can (laughs) tell. Like what is going on there? (laughs) And then I was just kind of like, you know what, maybe that was a good way of doing it. Maybe mm-hmm. I like I I can't help but think that that was a very good way of handling that. Um, and you know, in the fact that they managed to use the repulsor thing to just make him, you know, unbelievably eerie. He just rises up like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. However, I mean, you know, I this does kind of raise the question of are Are we going to in the next installment? Are we still going to potentially have to deal with the i with the fact that, um, you know, the Baron in the book is pretty transparently lusting after his own nephew? <laughs> Which actually just makes me think of, you know what, I'm shocked I haven't seen, like, even on a fandom level, that nobody has ever mind the fact that, you know, they make such a big deal out of, you know, oh no, you were supposed to have a daughter, you were supposed to have a daughter, you were supposed to have a daughter so that she could you know, marry the Harkonnen heir and then maybe, you know, then their son would be like to put that on schedule. And the fact is, is that the, the Harkonnen heir that, that this theoretical daughter that, you know, instead with Paul was supposed to marry was Faye Balsa. And it's just kind of like, I, I'm shocked that nobody has done even on a fandom level, as far as I can tell any exploration of, you know, did you, you, uh, you know, some kind of weird alternate, you know, I mean, this is what fandom's for and I'm just shocked that they've never done like a, so anyway, um, space nuds have consulted and you guys need to get married anyway. Like I, I'm genuinely shocked that nobody has done that, especially considering that, you know, they're, they're both described in the book as being incredibly pretty. And I'm just thinking like, wow, fandom has really dropped the ball from like doing the normal fandom things here. <laughs> and you know as many times as you messaged me just like how is this how is this character supposed to be 15 you know what i noticed that they didn't actually mention their his age in either movie Mm -hmm. so i i don't i don't think he's necessarily supposed to be 15
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I do find it humorous how like it's so obvious, uh, how Kai McLaughlin at first plays him as like very, very like soft spoken childish before his character arc starts. And it's like, You're twenty five. <laughs> it's
0: it's it's the it's the opposite effect from learning that Norrington's supposed to be eighteen in the in the prologue The Curse of the Black Curl. And then you look back on it, and you're just like, "Oh, it's so obvious that he's playing this guy as like a smug, dipshitty teenager at this point, compared to how you know stiff and humorless he is." <laughs> <laughs> you know, Elizabeth's dad comes over to just like, "You know, can you stop fucking scaring my daughter?" Jesus Christ! And how he just immediately has that "sorry, sir" look on his face.
1: Ah. <laughs> uh okay so another thing i noticed from uh, two movies that i am very curious if it's different in the books does shawnee do anything other than be tediously beguiling
0: you know that is kind of her job i'm here with you um from what i've read in the um in the mini series they did give her a bit more to do and part of me kind of feels like well you know if they're extending this into like a series she's probably going to have more to do they she definitely has at least already been a little bit blunter and like you know well anyway hope you don't die super bad out there (laughs) (laughs) which you know and that's that's already a little bit of a step up i think And I do like that they had her do the um, the opening narration of this one, but from a from in perspective.
1: Yeah, no, that was definitely good. Yeah, it was, I especially admire, like, the very clear meaning of the cut from her saying, I wonder who our next oppressor will be, cut to Paul waking up, like, oh, language of cinema! <laughs> And okay,
0: okay so so here's here's my here's my thing and like I, I say this as an American, obviously with like a very broad, almost broadcastery American accent myself. but I, I couldn't help but notice how much mileage both of these movies get out of having their respective uh, Peter deVries's just have very calm little American accents and how unsettling that comes off in context. And I cannot put a finger on how, but it really is a thing in both of them. <laughs> even if, even if they pronounce his name as Piter in the Lynch version, which is ridiculous. Cause, cause okay. Okay. <laughs> so while we're, while we're talking about this, let's, let's talk about the internet's favorite topic about this movie, which is, Jesus Christ! It's the future, and they're still naming people Paul and Jessica. <laughs> <laughs> and then, first of all, there's a guy in this franchise named Duncan Idaho, and he is basically by the end of it the face of the franchise. You know, sorry for the spoiler alert, but uh, Jason Hey-o. Momoa is J- Jason Momoa is fucking set for life if they end up making all of these into the movies. <laughs> but but there's also the fact that, you know, one that I don't see people bringing up very often is the fact that Peter De Vries is possibly the most normal Dutch name a guy can have. <laughs> and this character is like, is like this, you know, in both versions, just this incredibly creepy minion character. And it's just like, and, and like, I'm not kidding. You, you go to any good sized city in the Netherlands and you look it up and you're gonna you're gonna pull up probably a couple hundred guys with that name it's just like it is it is probably the most normal Dutch name anybody can have (laughs) and they used it for this freak I mean I mean has there has there ever been a character quite as deserving of like you know when people use, you know, oh, this absolute freak, in like the the Twitter fandom language sense. It's like that's uh, that's what that guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know, I, I I feel like very early on when I was like when you were asking me something about this, I think I even made a comment about like, and in the David Lynch movie, he's he's played by Brad Dorif, and he's exactly the kind of character that you would have played by Brad Dorif in nineteen eighty four.
1: uh i'm kind of shocked that i haven't seen him try to be made into the new tumblr boyfriend though
0: (laughs) you know i there's been there's been a little bit of that but honestly i i think that it might just be that i i think that he is operating on a whole other level of, like, like there's definitely a few people that feel that way about him. But I also think that there are people who will quite literally just be like, that's a disgusting little freak. And I'm into it.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the theme of the story and how it's been portrayed in uh, its film versions, because a lot of people have argued that uh, the most generous take is that it's about a man leaving his background of oppressor and using his power to fight for the oppressed. And some say, at its least generous, it's ultimately about how the oppressed can't save themselves, but only through the grace of a colonizer can they be free, much like in Avatar.
0: (laughs) You know, for a moment there, I I thought you were about to say like last airbender and I was just about to be like excuse me just because Zuko decided to help them (laughs) (laughs) I was I was like he's not the chosen one in that scenario okay (laughs) one of the biggest things that I think lends itself really strongly to the the white savior interpretation of this is the kind of common knowledge understanding the Fremen are supposed to be like space Arabs, and the thing is, is that weirdly enough, that's not actually where Frank Herbert drew most of his inspiration for them from. They are actually more or less space Chechens. Um, there's actually been a decent amount of uh, like amateur scholarship done online, pointing out that a lot, like a lot of aspects of the book were actually taken from a history book by a writer named Leslie Blanche called the sabers of paradise, which is actually about resistance to Russian imperialism in the Caucasus. There's just, I I really, I don't even want to like go into this because I'll, I will probably just end up like reading some of the articles about this because I don't have it memorized or anything yet myself but there are a lot of details in there that has been pointed out as being almost one-to-one with what goes on in Dune. So I think that that does muddy the waters somewhat. Um, and it, I mean, and I know that you can still technically expand the whole question of, you know, you know, even if it's not necessarily a white savior story, it still is, you know, here comes, Somebody of the oppressor class into any other, you know, op- oppressed class, that sort of thing. But that is a very interesting detail to keep in mind, especially because it does add a little bit more context and seems, in my opinion, a little bit less yeesh <laughs> when you consider that the Fremen take to their new Paul religion so strongly that they actually go around and start like slaughtering other cultures once they have the chance to, which again, you know, if you think of them purely as space Arabs is very, okay. 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 I mean,
1: don't they use the word jihad in the book though?
0: Well, they do, but I mean, you know, despite being but from a Western perspective, you know, a white European nature, I, uh, sorry, despite being from, you know, a Western perspective, you know, a white European region, you know, like a lot of Chechnya is uh, Muslim. So like there is a lot of, and like, you know, there are a lot of Arabic loan words into a lot of their languages. I mean, Frank Herbert actually straight up named, Let me actually, you know what, let me, let me pull this back. So, I mean, for one thing, they do, that's probably also because uh, Chechnya is majority uh, Muslim, even though from a Western perspective, it's a white European country. Um, so there are a lot of Arabic loan words in there, but there's also a whole lot of just straight up Caucasian words that once again, like, I don't mean that isn't like, you know, it's white. I mean, I mean, as in like actually from the Caucasus, various languages out there. Like, the actual name of, like, you know, the secret, you know, communication language that they have in their um, Chakomsa, that is the name of an actual hunting language from the Caucasus. Kanli, which is the word that gets used to essentially describe, like, what we would call a vendetta, that is also, you know, a word from the Caucasus. You know, the, um, they have knives called uh, kindyals that's a, the that's a type of knife from the Caucasus. Like, it really, really leans into there. And also, um, even though they were technically on the other side of the conflict, you know, a speech is the name of a
1: cosette camp. And I never would have guessed that from just the films.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, once again, I, it, you know, it does it does make a little bit more sense when you read the book. And even in the book context, you start to read it and you're just like, Wow, these 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 people do not sound particularly Middle Eastern to look at them. And then having this context is like, oh, okay. Which also, although, boy, I do I have to say, I do not like the optics of the end of the of full movie. <laughs> you know, even stepping aside from okay, they're not space Arabs. The fact that they still have Paul, you know, getting his place in the tribe by killing, you know, a very aggressive friend played by a black actor who's, like, calling for his blood and everything. He's just like, what the shit is going on here? Was this necessary?
1: Right?
0: (laughs) But, um, but you know, yikes, those are some bad optics. And I, I, you know, I'm not gonna give it a hand wave on that.
1: Like, we really don't need... (laughs) To talk about, I mean, in all fairness, the white teenage boy killed him out of self-defense.
0: Yeah, no, it's just, I, you know, let's, let's just call that what it is. That's, that's absolutely terrible, thoughtless optics. Hmm. And unless, unless that ends up being one of the things that manages to get pulled into it as part of the deconstruction of, you're not actually watching a hero's journey here. Even though, to be fair, I do, I do think that the Villeneuve movie does a pretty good job of communicating that Paul is already kind of dreading what he is worried he's going to become. And it is a lot easier to imagine this Paul eventually wandering off into the desert and discussing what he's done with himself. True. But that said, at the same time, considering that this is set in a universe where that kind of racism does not exist, I don't really think they can manage to fold that in there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for better or worse, with the uh, 1984 version, it had... It was... The hero's journey was played entirely straight uh, with Kyle McLaughlin's character. Just, like, I looked and, like, there was no hint of deconstruction of uh, his... Save your story and like no, no. He really, pretty much, is there to save everyone. It it's ends pretty happily.
0: Yeah, which I mean, although apparently Frank Herbert liked that movie, and his comment on the happy ending was more just kind of like, well, that that sure is a choice.
1: <laughs> but that's just, that's a thing though. Is like, I'm going to say something a bit controversial. In that, I actually preferred the ending of the first Dune movie over the new one, and it's because that the ending is just so straightforwardly happy and everybody's celebrating, but with the hindsight of knowing that the worst is yet to come. It's like, I'm also going to see something. (laughs) It's like, okay, it's like the ending of The Phantom Menace. It's pure jubilation of everybody, like, thinking that it's a happily ever after, but every no one but the audience knows that they're really celebrating their incoming doom and i think that absolutely works if they had just continued to make uh the movies uh throughout the 80s that would have worked or just like having that hindsight is what makes it work whereas the new the uh ending of the new movie it's just like okay, we're going to go to this place now, and scene. And it's like, okay, but like, and I get that it's a part one, but that's really not an excuse though. Because if you think about it, it uh, had a part one and part two. But when part one ended, you still felt like it had a uh, completed character arcs for the Although kids. to be
0: fair, it was adapted from a book that happened to have two parallel storylines. So they just teased out the storylines and put them in separate movies.
1: True, but at least it felt, I don't know, it just felt more satisfying. And I get, like, leaving your audience wanting more, but at the same time, it just felt... Mm.
0: I mean, to be honest, I actually am just really impressed with with almost with the balls it takes to end that uh, to end it that way on a meta level, because of just the whole, we're just really hoping that we can make a second one. We're hoping that this massive fucking movie does well enough that we can make a second one. I mean, that's it's just it's such an extraordinary leap of faith that I was just kind of like, Jesus,
1: you know? Well, like, they really lucked out, considering that part yeah. two was greenlit.
0: They're doing another one
1: <laughs> as,
0: as Hunter Harris put it on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually how I found out was just, you know, obviously it was all over, you know, trending and stuff. As soon as it was like officially out, but the first the first inkling I got that they greenlit a sequel. And I think I actually was just like, oh, hi, I guess they greenlit a sequel was because uh, Hunter Harris, the entertainment writer did a tweet that was an all lowercase, They're doing another one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so I I guess just, you know, your your one nugget of joy for this episode that manages to bring it back to the fact that this is theoretically a Loki podcast (laughs) (laughs) is um, when you refer to everybody, you know, going Minecraft, in the David Lynch movie, that is actually the inspiration for what the tenth ad doors look like.
1: Oh, that's right. <laughs>
0: yeah. 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 And, um, for that matter, for that matter, you know, I know that on this show, I've alluded in the past to, um, There being an entire episode of *The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy* that is just a huge riff on *God (laughs) Emperor of Doom*, but I forgot that in one of the earlier episodes, there is actually a beauty pageant that has the Calm Jabbar in the pain box as a test. (laughs) And when when the little girl contestant pulls her hand out and and starts crying and says, "It burns!" it inexplicably cuts to a pirate at the judges' table going yeah that'll cost her some points
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my my god something I just realized yeah I need how has the fandom not done uh, I really want to see hold on (laughs) I need to see someone cosplay as Paul with the pain box but it's dick in a box
0: oh my god
1: (laughs) I mean, I've, I've definitely
0: seen a whole lot of, you know, Brad Pitt. What's in the box? Yes!
1: I just love that the pain box exists as a test to see who's the main character because this isn't a world where people have pink hair, so that rules it out.
0: You know, the, the thing that I found myself wondering about And I don't mean this as in like a, oh, I could easily do that because, you know, let's be honest here. I I actually like quite literally have like wonky, easily overstimulated peripheral nerves. I absolutely could not handle the pain box. (laughs) But at the same time, I just kind of found myself thinking as I'm watching this, this can't be that hard for the majority of people. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like I maybe it's because you don't actually know that your hand isn't falling apart in there. I don't know. But I would I would think that there would be a decent number of people where if they're told, "Okay, it's going to really fucking hurt when you put your hand in the box," and they, I, I would think that that would not actually be that difficult if you were told it's going to really fucking hurt, but if you take your hand out, I'm going to poison you to death. Like, you know, I you know, I'm I swear I'm not doing a, you know, you know, rest in peace to you, but I'm different because no, I probably absolutely would fail that test. Like I cannot, you know, I, I don't know if I could do that. What's actually most likely to happen with me is I would probably just fucking pass out. But I, I do kind of feel like for a lot of people, if they're just like, okay, you're going to put your hand in the box and it's going to really fucking hurt. And you need to leave your hand in there hurting as long as you can. I, I would think that for a decent number of people, they would be able to tough it out. So it's very strange seeing it presented as this impossible challenge.
1: That would be... Well, that would be a very good first date session. Like, (laughs) just weed out the potential suitors to see how much they can endure (laughs) with me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm looking at my notes that I took when I was watching the Lynch version. And one of them is quite literally... They really did just put Sting in this movie, huh?
1: Yep. Okay, speaking of characters we don't have enough of, the real reason why I did not like the ending of the new Dune movie, I was waiting to see my queen, Aaliyah Atreides, and she never showed up.
0: (laughs) You technically got to see her as a baby in a future. (laughs) In like a flash forward. (laughs)
1: She was my favorite part of the 1984 version. I just immediately fell in love with her. I just get drawn to little girl characters who are, like, adorably creepy or creepily adorable. And with her, I have no idea if she would hug me or slit my throat, and that intrigues me. She,
0: she is just, I, I love
1: the way she's portrayed
0: in the David Lynch movie. She is just this tiny little murder nun.
1: Yes! She knows what has to be done. She does not let the fact that she is to stop her from completing her political assassination. <laughs> <laughs> Aaliyah, I, I won't hesitate, bitch. Atreides, we stand.
0: Yeah, I... <sighs> she makes me so sad because what ends up happening to her in the books is just so fucking horrible. Yeah.
1: And it's
0: just like, and, and I, 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 I feel like you in particular are just the embodiment of, of the people that just choose to go on revering her anyway. Like she has like the name that she eventually picks up in, in like, you know, from like the little subset of her brother's religion that reveres her is, um, is St. Aaliyah of the Knife. (laughs) Which, you know, which is, you know, just our our very small mother who
1: stabs in heaven. (laughs) Uh, She's like a little Catholic Arya Stark.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Except, you know, smaller and with absolutely no intention to get this over with and put this behind her because she's so tired of living this way <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know because that, the, you know the, the the ultimate tragedy of Arya is the fact is, is that she's still a very traumatized little girl and she wants to get this revenge but she also knows that it's just completely consumed you know she's 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 like this little tiny female Sweeney Todd before he goes completely off the deep end. You know, she's, you know, she is kind of in her Act Two Joanna phase, but there's still something in her, you know, that that she manages to like, you know, let's be honest. As far as I understand, she had actually like one of the only satisfying endings in the TV show. Oh, absolutely. Of just being like, of just being like, well. I'm going to go work on being a complete person again, and I'm going to go travel.
1: <laughs> and along the way, someone decided, you know what? Her character is absolutely perfect for our game where she fights Bugs Bunny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? As, as easy as it is to make fun of that, I have to say, they did a really good job With her art style. It's really just the fact that the Steven Universe characters are in their their art style that really stands out. But they actually did a pretty good job of unifying all of the, like, actually human-shaped humans.
1: Oh no! The art style is absolutely, like, the saving grace of this game. It's just, I find it absolutely hilarious that they deliberately chose a character from an M-rated TV series into what is clearly supposed to be a kid's game... So, since Warner Brothers, well, you know,
0: they probably did it because she's, like, 15 years old.
1: <laughs> I know, but, like, I get that the show is 10 years old. It's just, like, to have, like, 12-year-olds play this in the same universe as, like, Adventure Time and Steven Universe, I just as well as, like, Game of Thrones that had so much violence and nudity. It's like, okay, okay, Warner Brothers, you want to play that game? We can play that game, all right? Like, you thought it was okay to have, like, a clockwork orange characters in the background of Space Jam A New Legacy, so clearly you have no limit.
0: Well, you know what? Now's a good time to bring up the fact that Paul and Shawnee are now characters that you can download in Fortnite.
1: Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, okay, That it's I thought I was just making a joke, but clearly then there's nothing stopping them from putting Lido Atreides II as a new player in a multiverses. <laughs>
0: and all the all roads lead back to Worm Guy. Yes. Um, because, you, I mean I, I think that, like, the most tragic part of this for us is really the fact that, you know, I think Phil has said that he only intends to adapt to the end of uh, Children of Doom, which is when we know that he's going to start that awful thousands of years long metamorphosis. <laughs> but I, I, I don't know if he intends to actually make a movie out of God Emperor. Especially because, to be honest, there's a big drop-off in quality in the series after God Emperor. Like, if God Emperor happens, it should probably be the end of the film series. But also because how in the fuck do you go beyond that? Like,
1: I mean, how the fuck do you go beyond Game of Thrones, but we're getting a continuation of that series in House of the Dragon?
0: Okay, okay. For one thing, isn't that a prequel? And for another thing, listen, listen. There's there's finding out about the backstory of when you have a big royal house, and then there's Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya's son um, ends up like fusing himself with a bunch of worms, and then we check back in three thousand years later, and he's he's just this gigantic miserable worm king who's just like you know he gets like engaged to you know this diplomat who's actually been like basically raised from birth to manipulate him except it turns out that all that did was make them too compatible and he's just like i don't have a penis just so you know <laughs> they, they have to put him on this worm wagon no carry him
1: i don't have a penis i am a penis <laughs>
0: I mean, and for that matter, you know, when I talk about how, you know, Jason Momoa has just got it made for the rest of his life in this series, because, so the fun thing about Duncan is that even though we saw him die in this movie, he comes back in every other installment, sometimes in ways that make it kind of weird. And also, I love that they cast Jason Momoa as Duncan, because it's practically a running joke in these books that the chicks dig Duncan. (laughs) <laughs> Duncan has a di- because it's technically a different edition of Duncan pretty much every pretty much every installment Duncan gets to have so many girlfriends he he actually ends up in a relationship with grown up Alia at one point oh wow although it's technically a Duncan clone so it's not that right <laughs> I mean uh, it'll-, it'll be interesting to see how like you know the silky anti- and shit handle that but oh mm. god <laughs> oh god wait wait until they wait until they get to the point where uh, where Paul and Shani's, uh twin children at one point actually each end up like getting the ancestral memories of their parents a little bit too close to the surface and they're both like wow we need to never fucking do that again <laughs> we just don't we, you know <laughs> they it, it, it's it's, a, it's an interesting situation what ends up happening with the two of them because, it, it you know, at, at this point, you know, especially after we were just talking about Game of Thrones, it's an interesting contrast to see a pair of twins in fiction where they're just like, wow, there are a lot of reasons that we might end up doing that, and that's why we absolutely need to make sure that we are never fucking doing that. <laughs> you know, uh, Leto's sister, um, Ganima actually... So, like, he, she actually ends up being the one to carry on the family tradition of, like, dynastically marrying, but then, like, having a side piece with whom she actually has a relationship, because that's, that's the whole thing, is that once he starts, like, the whole Sandworm transformation, Leto actually does dynastically marry his twin sister, Ganima, except for the whole thing where they both mutually agree about, like, and we are never fucking ever. (laughs) and she actually ends up basically taking you know it, i i can't i can't believe i get to use this phrase because this sounds so much like a like the new hot twitter meme um she actually ends up taking a male concubine ah uh, yeah yeah she actually i mean technically uh well actually no they're only related by marriage um so she actually ends up um she actually ends up in, like, an actual romantic relationship with uh, Princess Irulan's nephew, whose mother has been, like, trying to basically use him as, like, you know, a wep- as a weapon of vengeance against, like, you know, the Atreides. And he's just like, Mom, this is really stupid. I don't want to get involved in <laughs> And in the end, he and Ganema he hook up, and he actually ends up being the being you know part of the atreides line himself albeit indirectly because you know considering he's in the process of turning into a giant worm with no penis it's not like uh it's not like the Second's going to be having any kids
1: ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you had to choose between 84 dune and 21 dune and only one what would it be Oh god,
0: I I mean technically I think I had a more fun time watching the eighty-four one, but I am really interested in seeing where the twenty one one is gonna go, like as a multi part series. I don't even want to call it a franchise because it's not really that.
1: I know, Which but I have... it's owned by Which Warner Brothers, Brothers, so they are going to make it a franchise.
0: I mean, at the same time, I am I do have to admit I'm a little bit frustrated, you know, once again with some of the film bro opinions about like you know treating the announcement of part 2 as in like oh boy they just they're just trading out the cape shit for space shit to get ready for the you know annually mandated dune dune installments and it's like you mean finishing adapting the book <laughs> like you know it's i mean obviously at this point you know i you know we and and harry potter are never ever ever getting back together but um, even, you know, but even bearing that in mind, I don't, I don't really remember people making the same kind of comments about like, you know, Jesus Christ, they're making another one. They understood that it was a book series and that they intended to adapt the entire book series. And, you know, cash cow or not, that is, that is different than like the MCU production model. And I say this even though, even like on what is technically an MCU aspect <laughs> Not that this episode has really been watched. <laughs> um, that you know, I, you know, I, I, as I've mentioned before several times, in a lot of ways, I, you know, I'm kind of functionally broken up with the MCU, except for you know Thor and Thor accessories. Um, and so I completely understand what people are talking about when they're when they talk about you know extruded superhero movie product. <laughs> At this point, you know, I when we were talking about putting this episode together, I was actually gonna make a make a joke early on that I ended up not doing because it felt a little bit too mean spirited about because what did you expect us to do? Make an Eternals episode? Mm. Grow up. And I you know, and I was like, Okay, that's that might be a little bit too mean spirited. But I, I just I don't understand the equation of let's adapt a film series versus let's keep pumping out superhero movies, you know, it's, I, I understand that they are similarly economically motivated, but from like a creative perspective, there's a pretty big difference there. And, you know, and honestly, I, I have to say now that, now that I'm thinking about this, I've, I think one of the reasons that I liked Loki show so much was because it was so fucking bizarre compared to the rest of the MCU. I mean, I, I feel comfortable in saying it. That was a weird goddamn show, and I'm so glad it was.
1: Yes, weird. Weird in, like, the best possible way. It was weird and It was entertainingly weird. WandaVision was, like, so uniquely weird. Yeah,
0: WandaVision, too. Wanda, but, again, WandaVision was also very much not in the typical mold Mm -hmm. and you know and I not to say that you know Falcon and Winter Soldier was bad I mean I think it was pretty well done as a drama series but I will say that it was definitely the one that held my interest the least just because I was just kind of like I I, you know I almost feel like I might as well be watching a Tom Clancy miniseries unless more socially aware of Tom it's it's a hat show (laughs) (laughs) you know (laughs) You, you know, I, um, one of the other reasons that I've been very busy and why this episode has been uh, so off schedule is because uh, my roommate and I have actually been in the process of finding another roommate to fill a recently vacated bedroom in our apartment. And we we have somebody, we're currently working on like getting the sublease agreements and all that. But when we were talking to one of the first candidates, I alluded to you know oh yeah you know I, I'm I'm on a Loki after show podcast that um, our next episode is actually gonna be Dune related and the candidate that we were talking to started talking about the movie my roommate asked you know well how is it and she said like like well you know it was it was certainly, it was certainly really impressive to look at, but I thought the story was really confusing. And and I immediately like finger guns at her and I'm like, then it's a good adaptation of Dune. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I, I probably should have said this earlier, but while I'm thinking about it, I think my favorite little point of contrast between the two versions, just because it's, so bizarre when you think about it this way is I love that between the two of them the same character is played by Sir Patrick Stewart and by Josh Brolin they are playing the same guy
1: which you could never say for anything else (laughs) it's Professor X and Thanos playing the same character So
0: I've, I've seen a handful, like, related to the whole, the Fremen are, are actually, like, you know, based on Chechen conversations. I've also seen people trying to identify, you know, what some of the other factions in this are based on. And um, while a lot of people drew a lot of connections between the um, the Bene Gesserit and, like, the Jesuits, except this being, like, an all-female order... I love that there was a Twitter thread where somebody just dug up in response proof that he basically, Frank Herbert basically just, they're just entirely extrapolated out of his experiences with terrifying Irish Catholic nuns. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, would you say then that, uh, I think Caledon? Yeah. Yeah, so would you say that Caledon is clearly in this movie supposed to be represented as Scotland?
0: You know, I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, it definitely does look like, from what I've seen, like the prettiest parts of Scotland look like.
1: That and the whole bagpipes. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: I personally, I I love the fact that they just just let's just put some fucking bagpipes in there. <laughs> you know, people people give Hans Zimmer a, a lot of a lot of shit but you know what I love when he just decides you know okay gloves off let's get weird with it yes you know kind of the kind of thing that leads to an impressive set piece you know like fully fitting the fact that Davy Jones is playing the pipe organ with his face like yes yes (laughs) that's that's the good shit right there (laughs) that's what we're here for I love the fact that apparently for the 2021 version that that uh, Zilnov cast Sofia Hala to just be like as lovable as possible. <laughs> Especially because you know they made the Mentats in general so creepy in the David Lynch movie that in this one just being like this just needs to be a guy that you just instinctively trust. <laughs> and it's like you know what they absolutely pulled that off. You know, yeah. I love Parasol. <laughs>
1: Uh, i mostly agree with you on where i stand between the two films i do ultimately prefer uh the 1984 version just because of like uh the visuals and uh, just telling a more like complete story poster on my wall i'm not gonna argue
0: with you about that
1: yeah but i also agree that i am certainly i certainly have my interest peaked with the new one and i can't wait to see it uh play out in what's hopefully part two uh well do you think that's going to okay again i haven't read the book so i have no idea where in this main story arc the books end so I have no idea if it's just going to like end with everybody I have no idea if part 2 is going to end with like everybody still celebrating having no idea of what's to come or if it's like oh, oh the most
0: thing- most likely although if it follows if it follows the book exactly it actually ends with um it actually would end with a very specific moment of and I just I love this line so much it actually ends like, if it follows the book directly with Chani feeling really deflated at the fact that, you know, the love of her life has just agreed to basically dynastically marry somebody else, even though he's assured her that, you know, Irulan is never going to be functionally his wife. You know, this is purely a dynastic marriage. He doesn't even intend to, you know, he doesn't even intend to, like, dynastically produce children with her. He, it, it's purely like a, a power thing. And Jessica, who, you know, spent her whole life as, as Duke Leto's concubine, you know, and effectively, you know, pretty much his wife, but never actually there. She actually comes over and she has this great line where I can't remember how, the entirety of how it goes. But she says, but I think like the last line of the book, if I remember correctly, is something about like the Chani history will remember us as wives and like i love that the book ends on that line <laughs> if i remember correctly i like that i mean, I mean it's, it's such a great line honestly and i mean and it just makes me think that somebody somebody i'm twitter mutuals with in terror fandoms Whose partner is currently just like falling down the dune hole in like the most adorable, like completely ingenuous way possible. <laughs> and, and she posted, she posted that one of his comments on this was, you know, was just like, oh, well, I think it's nice that it, that I, I think it's nice when a boy gets to go on an adventure with his mom, <laughs> 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 which is my favorite assessment of this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes that's what it's all about <laughs> That, that... <laughs> it, it's, it,
0: this is, it's just one long elaborate sci-fi messianic archetype deconstruction that really at it's heart is just the, the mother boy annual dance from Arrested Development. Good night, everybody <laughs> <laughs> have not actually forgotten the fact that this is a low-key podcast. And you know what? Hey, we, we did we we did actually just do an episode about, you know, something something dark haired pretty boy cheekbone purpose.
1: Yeah, we stayed on point.
0: <laughs> we, we 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 were at least in the same neighborhood, and you know. And I guess there's a lot of like questions of predestination and stuff going on here. Maybe, maybe we can count this. I mean, but certainly one of my favorite things that's come up in our texting exchanges about this franchise, though, was the moment that Maureen realized that this is supposed to be happening in the same universe as us in the future. <laughs> Just, just going straight up ending of Planet of the Apes in, in my text messages. <laughs> and it's, and I mean, yeah, it's, it's the whole thing. I mean, they even they even have, like, you know, at one point, like, garbled history lessons that mention the U.S., but, just, but they refer to it as House Washington. Also, their, their records are a little bit screwy, and they think Alexander the Great was the first emperor of the known universe.
1: Close enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, thank you for bearing with us through this this detour. We are aware that we have not yet done poor Ragnarok, but you know what, George R. R. Martin still hasn't written the Winds of Winter, so you know, don't give us that look. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, that would be hilarious if Thor Ragnarok was, like, our Winds of Winter. And, like, don't worry, it's coming. We're working on it. Just check our live journal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't
0: really have anything else to cover until we start going into, like, the obscure Loki stuff. Like, you know, like, the YA novel. Well,
1: we- I was sure, thinking I think. we could talk about combining Infinity War and Endgame just like talking about like seeing Loki and Thor's arc as a whole through those movies.
0: But that would require me to watch Infinity War and Endgame.
1: Oh, I didn't know you didn't see those yet.
0: I I have seen the Thor scene supercut. <laughs> I don't think you understand how much I am here for Thor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here on my couch looking extremely peeved with a little Homer Simpson-style pennant (laughs) that just (laughs) says Thor.
1: Well, we can talk about that. We can talk about, like, just taking a step back and seeing Thor and main timeline Loki's arc and what, like, their endings uh, said about them.
0: Man, speaking of, uh, speaking of celebrating... (laughs) right before absolute doom hits. Right? So, um, anyway, thank you for bearing with us on this this very strange journey into the saga of you know, a different, dark haired, pale, pretty white boy, you know, convinced that he's got some kind of higher purpose. I mean, see, see look, we did stay on topic. Uh... <laughs> Um, And, you know, speaking of happy endings with absolute doom on the horizon, quite literally in this case, we still have Thor Ragnarok to look forward to before we go into possibly discussing the Thor parts of Infinity War and Endgame. And it's going to have to be only the Thor parts because that's all I've seen. (laughs) I have no intention of watching this movie. (laughs) But, you know, there's there's a lot more. There's a lot of comic history to dig through. There is that YA novel that has been alluded to on here a few times. There have been specific comic runs that might be interesting to delve into. There have been fan and
1: fiction. So,
0: so we will have plenty more piping hot Loki content in the future. But hopefully you won't mind that this one time we decided to uh, spice things up a bit. Ayy. hey <laughs> <A. laughs> So, a good I, I, would norm- I would normally say we'll see you in a couple of weeks, but at this point, who knows? <laughs> For future reference, we're not going to be super beholden to a schedule, probably, until season two of the Loki show comes out. And when that happens, we do want to go back to our proper follow-up episode format but for now we're, we're we're kind of just vibing yeah we're we're unbothered we're relaxed we're moisturized we're in our lane
1: <laughs> we're taking the spice <laughs> <laughs> we're traveling from here
0: on out <laughs> good night everybody good night <laughs>